0: Snuff Production. G'day, I'm Scott Phillips, the Chief Investment Officer of The Motley Fool and the host of The Good Oil Podcast. Now, if you're not familiar with the phrase, you should be by now, but if you're not... Giving someone the good oil is giving them the good stuff, the important stuff, yep, and the real stuff, which is exactly the aim of this podcast. We bring you conversations with entrepreneurs, experts, and executives, the people who know what's going on, and the people who make things happen. And as usual, today's guest is no different. I'm joined by a man with his finger on the property pulse, and it couldn't be a more timely or more important conversation given what's happening in the property market and what is forecast by some to happen, we'll get to that in a little bit. But before I do, let me simply introduce you to the owner and founder of Wealthful, Chris Bates. G'day, Chris. How are you? Scott, always good to chat to you, mate. Thanks for
1: um, having me on,
0: mate. I, my pleasure. I, I should say too, you're the co-host of the Elephant in the Room podcast, which you've been generous enough to invite me on. So uh, returning the favour, but not not because I owe you one, but because you have some really useful stuff to share with our listeners. Mates, I don't even know where to start, but I will start rather than with what's going on right now. Let's set the scene a little bit. You started Wealthful in 2014. Uh, you had been a financial advisor for many, many years, now in the mortgage broking space. So I kind of like that you've you've had or you've got a foot in, not exactly both camps, it's not like they're different places, but you've been there, you've done that, you've seen it, you've helped people with it. Tell me the Wealthful story, if you would.
1: plan was always to open my own sort of thing. Yeah. We opened as a financial advice and mortgage broking business, but back in 2020, we sold the advice business predominantly because for the last decade, we've been focused on guiding people on their big property decisions. And we stopped working with the pre-retiree and retiree, um, you know, all the way back at the start of the business. And, you know, for young people, property is their biggest challenge, you know, getting their first home, getting on top of the mortgage, you know, upgrading, renovating Um, But also I think it's their biggest opportunity due to leverage um, and their income and small amount of cash, you know. Not many people have got, you know, millions in their bank at 30, you know, but they've got great income. So, you know, we've (laughs) just really nailed that discussion and we've sort of built a bit of a niche out there. And fortunately, it's sort of worked. We've, you know, created a name for ourselves and it's meant that we've become one of the biggest brokers. We'll settle over $300 million this year, which for an individual broker puts us really in the top cohort.
0: That's amazing, mate. Congratulations! That's that's a spectacular result. Let's let's start with let's start with property uh, generally. Um, I know you guys uh, by background. You and I have actually never met, but we've chatted a few times. Um, I know the work that you do, literally in your business and also on the Elephant in the Room podcast, which is fantastic. And you and Veronica kind of made the point of dealing with the elephant in the room. That's kind of the name of the podcast, right? Talking about the stuff that people aren't talking about, or, or words to that effect, is one of the taglines of your podcast. You talk about the, the, the advice market, financial advice generally, property advice in particular, it's pretty broken, mate. Like I'm, I'm a financial advisor by trade, general financial advisor. Uh, you have been and went to mortgage broking. Um, we see this stuff all the time. It drives me a little bit nuts, the lack of customer focus by a section of the, the – I'm not going to say everybody. It's absolutely not everybody but a section of the financial advisory market. And it also drives me a little bit nuts, mate, that property isn't covered by any financial services legislation that covers things like shares. Um, By the way, crypto is also not covered. We're not going to talk about that today. But there's a lot of gaps and there's a lot of, I call it chicanery going on. Uh, what what do you see, mate, in the financial advice space? And maybe just from your perspective as an ex-advisor and now broker uh, and someone who tries to do it the right way and do it ethically, what what should people be careful of? What do you see go wrong? Um, what's your advice for people looking for a great advisor in either of those two spaces?
1: Yeah, it's a really good question, Scott. I, I'd say um, I've been a bit very disillusioned. It's one of the reasons I got out of advice. I, I, I couldn't, it was a decade of seeing things and the frustrations. Uh, financial advice uh, reforms happened, were meant to happen in 2012, and it kept getting delayed, and there's all these changes with education, et cetera. To be honest, in 2022, I actually think it's shifting the other way. The advisor numbers have collapsed. You know, we've probably seen 26,000 advisors. I haven't looked recently, but I thought it was down to like 18 or 17,000. Um, it's really, I feel like a lot of the old sort of dead wood, I guess, and people probably who have been doing advice in the 80s, 90s, and, tw- and 2000s, who, which was absolutely around sort of building assets under management, you know, selling a value proposition that was um, not really valuable, was actually costing. Clients' money and it was so hard to be outperform markets. Um, it was mis-selling insurance. It was sort of so heavily. Convicted. It was product sales,
0: right? It wasn't advice. It was product sales. Let's be let's let's call the a spade a shovel. Yeah,
1: exactly. And you had a lot of banks involved. You had the you know you know dishing out advice and creating sales forces, which I was actually part of in the UK. So I saw it firsthand. I changed banks, thought it would be greener, and it was actually <laughs> worse. And so um, my frustration is, I think the good thing is a lot of the banks are out of advice. And the advice industry is um, condensing, I guess, or consolidating. Um, and you're creating two different advice. You've got your 30s, 40s advisor that gets it and is really committed to their long-term future. And they've stepped away from product advice and they've stepped into strategy and accountability coaching. And that, that is so valuable for certain types of clients who, who will take action. Then you've got the advice businesses that are a bit more at the premium end, you know, the the ultra high net worth, you know, they're they're really sort of doing complex tax structuring and investment and sort of, you know, transitional planning to the kids, etc. And that's a really growth market as well. So I I do think in 2022, the advice industry is getting rid of its problems finally. And I really do, I'm really, and even things around insurance are being cleaned up. So I think even our clients are going to advisors more than ever, and I didn't think that three years ago. If you're going to go to an advisor, don't go for, don't get, walk into an advisor and ask the wrong questions and, and want to get sold. Go in there and say, where's the best place to invest? Can you get me 8% returns? The the advisor whose ethics are skewed will promise you that, charge you fees, and then two years later you'll realise they're not knowing what they're doing and then you'll leave and you'll be worse off. And you'll actually then go and never see an advisor before. You will make, you know, the opportunity cost is huge. If you go to an advisor, go to the advisor that focuses you on your goals and accountability and taking action and keeping the investment part simple—that's not really their value proposition. Look, from a property side, the property market is completely unregulated, right? Not anyone can say whatever they want. The reality is, if you go to any advisor and they start saying this is the best stock to buy, this is the best location to buy for you, before you even get to know your goals, and um, and don't consider things like upgrading your house and not taking action and waiting and you know looking at one quality asset, anything that's new or quantity, I'd avoid. Um, and it's actually really hard. They shouldn't be able to say, oh, I can turn this over <laughs> fast, or I can get this amazing property yeah. off market. These are all warning signs. And so you've got to be really careful in the property market. The issue with property and financial advisors is a massive one. It's my one of my biggest pain points coming. Advisors just don't understand it. They've sure. never been yep. trained in it. And they are being told not to yeah. ever look at it because what it means is it moves funds away that, that from they can manage into assets they can't manage. And so their potential fee <laughs> and revenue and value proposition is, is actually skewed. Great advisors, younger ones, are looking at property yeah. and they're going, okay, I see this is a it's a $10 trillion asset. You know, the share market, say, three, let's call it. I don't even know, Scott, you'd know that number. But, you know, it's a huge play. So good advisors understand they've got to know property.
0: This week, the RBA kept rates on hold but changed the language in their statement. The financial market now speculating that rates might go up as soon as June. In today's Australian... Um, there was something of a rehash article, but it was it was kind of one of those, hey, what are people saying about property prices? Some people saying, look, it won't decline at all. It won't decline much. Maybe it'll be flat for a while. I think it's AMP saying down 15%. I think they're the, they're the outlier. CBA, 14 from memory. Westpac, I think 10 um, or 4. There's it, it, it a range of kind of, you know, from somewhere to something else. It's a, I'll say fraught, it's a fraught time to be thinking about buying property, not because necessarily it's a bad time to buy property, but because people are worried about what comes next. And I've got to say I am worried for people who are buying and taking on big mortgages at low rates, borrowing as much as they can and aren't necessarily as prepared as they should be. So again, we'll get to the advice here in a second. What are you seeing out there, mate? Look, you know, we can. the RBA does its thing and, and economists do this macro national thing. Uh, you're literally writing or helping people write mortgages every day. You're looking at property purchases every day. The... Anecdotes are that property market's cooling. Maybe we're kind of getting to flattish. What are you seeing out there? What's actually going on? What are you seeing in the market? What are you hearing from your clients?
1: Scott, to be honest, the real people who have taken the most risk were people who bought last year in the frenzy and the FOMO and very low stock. Got desperate. And pay big dollars for compromised assets. In 2022, they're not out and about. You know, the buyers aren't aren't, the buyers aren't, you know, they're sitting on their hands, they're buyer beware, they're they're watching to see what happens with interest rates. So I'm really the people who are gonna get burnt are the people who, you know, in 2020 and 2021 paid a lot of money for compromised assets and, and over leveraged, thinking the rates would stay at 2% forever. Um and those assets, if they and something changes to their financial situation, they no longer can afford the mortgage, they get a divorce, something happens you know, to their health or income, etc. They don't get the bonus they thought they were going to get and then they start to get into financial stress and they have to sell in the next couple of years. The big thing, you know, the RBA, I mean, the market's been talking about interest rates going up and, you know, so when the RBA say it's a little bit late to the party and they're sort of holding their, their stance a little bit, trying to do that forward guidance play, But the reality is they're going to go up. The big shock in 2022 is late 2021, we thought maybe rates would go to 3%, maybe 3.5%. 2022, we're sort of saying maybe 4%, right? It's been a big, and that may happen in the next one to two years rather than three or four years. And so it's really scared buyers. Fixed rates were all around 2%, but you cannot get a good fixed rate anymore. They're all like three to close to 4%. We are still seeing a lot of buyers who missed out in 2020 and 2021, who have still got a massive lifestyle ticking time bomb. You know, they've got kids in schools and they're renting and they just really want to get something. They're buying, but they're being very selective. There's not a lot of new buyers entering the market. They're just, you know, they're just a little bit, they're very nervous and they're gonna their time frame to buy is gonna be a lot longer. Um, and then just not willing to take the compromises. The big issue at the moment, though, is you're gonna see a lot of investors wanna get out of assets that they know have been poor. Um, and we're seeing a lot of investors get out of things that, you know, cheaper assets, you know, apartments, you know, because they can roughly can get out of them and they can get into better assets. Um, and things that have been going up a lot in the last two years, which is really the the, the fringe, you know, um, outer skirts of capital cities and the poor assets in regions, they all went up because of low interest rates. They didn't go up because of higher incomes. So incomes aren't going up. Inflation, you know, petrol is just one sort of thing, food, et cetera. Expenses are going up with the interest rates and they're going to get squeezed. And new buyers are going to say, well, I'm not willing to stretch to that price if interest rates are 3 or 4%. I was willing to do it last year. So the, the affordability part of the market is going to struggle. And compromised properties in the medium and higher end, if you have to sell them right now, you're not going to get a good price. So you have, to, if you're buying a quality asset right now, you have to go where wage growth is still strong because they need that to keep the prices that borrowing the money. And they're going to, if wage growth isn't strong, they're not going to have the confidence to borrow at 3 and 4%. Um, and so we're going to see the market split into The haves and haves nots are going to unfortunately get worse. Um, and then the government's going to do everything they can to support the market. We've already seen 50,000 1st home buyer placements. We're going to see APRA potentially reduce the assessment to increase borrowing capacities. Um, who knows what else we're going to see down the line from the government to, to try to prop it up over the next couple of years.
0: Mate, it's, it's, uh, let's go with um, what else I, Let's go with compromised assets. That was the beginning of your answer. Um and you talk about regional and, and rural, you talk about low income and have-nots, there's so much, so much here, mate, I don't know how I'm going to get through it. But let's talk about compromised assets. When Actually, let's take a half a step back further. When buying property, you know, people talk about the share market. Now, the beauty of the share market for what it's worth is you can buy an ETF that tracks the entire market. You don't have to worry about the crap companies because the good ones will take care of most of it, right? And you're kind of Okay. With property, unless or until you're building a meaningful portfolio of multiple properties, hopefully with some degree of, I assume, I would say anyway, as an advisor, diversification. I'm not sure if you agree. Um, but until you do that, you're buying one property or two. And so you're pretty concentrated, which is not necessarily a bad thing. But gee, it means you've got to be really, really, really sure what you're buying. So let's talk about, if you could, maybe you can compare for me compromised assets and grade A property. Uh, two sides of the same coin and this is kind of getting into the tips and tricks already, but given what's where we are in terms of your answer, um, what's a compromised asset, made, and what makes for a grade A property? Are should we talking investors here specifically or would you give the same advice to owner-occupiers as well?
1: It's actually the same advice. Um, and, you, and your point there, Scott, around um, quantity and diversification. In property, it's sort of the opposite. You sort of go all in. Rather than having two compromised properties, you always go in for one quality asset. And it sounds, you know, it doesn't sound make sense. You know, as an advisor, think about diversification and, you know, reducing risk in in, with property. When you start to diversify, you start cutting up your budget into assets and you start cutting up the quality and you start limiting. And that's one of the biggest mistakes property investors make is they, they, you know, they've got an asset that's not great as their home and they go and buy an investment property. They should have just upgraded their home or they bought one investment property, they get a bit more capacity and they buy another poor property. Next thing you know, they've got four poor properties and they go years down the line, they say it's not working exactly. So what's a compromised asset? Look, it's actually common sense, but you know we know in investing, Scott, common sense goes out the window and emotions take over. But in property, you have to think that it. it's livability. Property is a lifestyle asset. It's driven by home buyers that go into a lot of debt and put in a lot of their wealth which they could put into other assets, business, shares, et cetera, but they go, no, I'm going to allocate this to property and I'm going to go into a lot of debt because I want the lifestyle benefit. Part of it's security and stability in schools like that. But the good assets is that they don't go, they pay millions and millions of dollars for security and stability because if they wanted that, they could buy a cheap property. What they do is they go for the lifestyle benefit, the location, the accessibility to the beach or the the ocean or the city you know even in the suburb they'll pay more to be you know a 300 meter walk to the local shops and if you're 1.2k or if you've got to get a bus to the to the train so you've got a, a suburb that's got to have amazing lifestyle but you have also got to have a strong nimby mentality everyone wants to put you'll put more money into a suburb if you think it's going to be the same in 10 years time than if a suburb you don't have a clue what's going to happen a strong nimby suburb, a strong older wealth, a lot of people never selling out of the suburb because they just love the suburbs. You get low turnover, very strong nimbyism, a real tangible lifestyle benefit. So whether it's nature or city or schools or access to the city, so a little sanctuary um, and they're not building any more in these locations. Um, So in in those streets, you'll have busy roads. So a compromise property, you could pick the suburb, right? Um, but then you may get the street wrong. You might be on the worst where you've got buses happening, you've got a school, you've got rat runs, you've got noise, you've got flight paths, you've got who knows. So, street matters a lot. Aspect is a huge part. So, if you got on a good street, but you get south facing aspect, it's really cold in winter and you've got surrounded by trees, that property's compromised. You know, that property's cold in winter and it's never a great place. If it's got noise or privacy, that's the thing that's, you know, if you go in your back deck and all of a sudden you've got 15 windows looking at you um, and you, all you want to do is have your morning coffee, like privacy is a big part of it. Um, floor plan is a huge thing. You know, a lot of houses are dysfunctional. They're built in, you know, older. So unless you can, sometimes you can't change floor plan. The bathroom's right at the back and it's too expensive to move it to the front, all sorts of things like that. Um, the frontage, like people, you know, unfortunately, status is a huge part of property. The frontage is what sells when people rock up at your house. The streetscape matters. So not just your property, but your neighbors and the and the street and the setback and the trees. And so a compromised property might be a, an ugly looking duckling next to a mechanic with no trees and a more footpath, right? It's gonna so it's you gotta just think about it. Is this property got things that people aren't gonna like? You know, stairs and all sorts of random things, you know. Um, and then you've got building quality issues and stuff like that, which you can potentially change. So the properties right now is when someone goes into it now and they say, "Look, I like it, but I don't like that. I'm going to keep looking. That's compromised." When they get there and they go, "You know what? this is the dream property. Wow, I like it. I like it. They can't stop. They take the smile off their face. Those properties don't come on the market because people never really want to sell them. And in any market they sell hot. We remember back in 2018, 2019, Sydney market was down 15 percent. All our clients were being picky. They find this one property that comes on, which is the grade A, because they're only going for grade A's. They rock up and there will be 60 people at the auction, even in the downturn. This is exactly what will happen over the next couple of years. The good stuff will be less likely to sell because they know, they know they can't get the best price for it right now compared to 2021. Um, and they'll hold their, because there'll be less properties like that on the market. So then there'll be this Mexican standoff and then they'll still hold their value. The compromised properties, if you have to sell right now, the, buy, the, the power's with the buyer. So the buyer's going to let you come to them and that's where you start to see some decent falls, even in great suburbs, because buyers are desperate to our sellers are desperate to sell and buyers are like, well, hang on a sec. I'm only going to pay <laughs> that's that.
0: right. Mate, again, spectacular answer, mate. I feel like I should be charging. Or maybe I should be paying you or our should be paying for the episode. Uh, Suburb, street, aspect, privacy, floor plan, frontage, stairs, building quality, uh, just for starters. And that was in one single answer, mate. Thank you for being so generous. Um Okay, let, let me let me throw you a a question that I don't necessarily. It's one I've had before, and one you've answered before when I've appeared with you guys. Uh, but uh, you gave me a chance to ask a question, which I did. But I'll ask it on behalf of our listeners here. There's in, in in investing. I would say to our our listeners, sometimes with companies, you have a business that's super profitable, really high quality, fantastic, great management, all that kind of stuff. Um, but I would say, well, hang on, that that's true. But it also that that's how you get the level of profitability you get. It's more profitable because it's got a great brand. It's more profitable. So if you're paying a PE that's already that multiple of earnings because that earnings are high, you don't to pay a high PE for high earnings because you're paying twice for the same thing. So to bring it back to the property analogy, let me ask you the, the, the kind of half rhetorical, half Dorothy Dixer question. Those things are all true. But in theory, I would, I, well, let, let's speculate, that people already know that. So that's already in the price. So if I'm buying a house that has all those things, I'm already paying up for that in the first place. Why would I expect that to be a, you know, if I if I could build a property like that, sure. if I could find a really, really cheap one like that, if I'm, or if I, if i if I inherit one, then I'm I'm sitting pretty. But if I've got to pay 25, 30, 40% more, I'm just picking numbers for that property because it has all those things. Aren't I already paying up for that? Is, is the future gain already in the price or is there genuine outperformance for these properties moving forward on top of what is already in theory priced in because there's 60 people at the auction because they're already getting great prices?
1: It's a good question. You'd think uh, property, unfortunately, because it's driven by the lifestyle benefit, people don't trade property like shares, right? And so they don't trade bad news. They, in down markets, there's less supply. They're not building any more of them. In fact, turnover of quality assets is getting less every year. We're living in our homes longer. So if you've got 100 properties, Everyone's the number of them selling every year is actually reducing. So supply is actually reducing every year because supply is basically who it's the marginal buyer, right? You know, you can only the price is based on who's selling, not of how many there is. And so every year there's less for sale. You've also got to, I mean, there are some big things to bet on here. You're betting on long-term population growth, you're betting on the success of our economy, you're betting on capitalism. Um, and apart, and you're also betting on that as living standards increase and people do well financially, they buy lifestyle. Right, they don't go and just sit on a beach, right? And so, if you assume those things, what you're trying to, and you're not trying to time the market. The reason timing's hard is in down markets, it's even harder to buy these properties. You know, you might think because what you're doing, everyone else is doing what you're doing. They're all waiting for that right property. And they're all sitting on their hands. And so, the you know, it was the best time to buy it in down markets if you can get it, right? And so, but, you know, you also potentially, if you wait for that to happen, you can very easily miss the bouncing ball. We know that in stock markets, right? The market's falling 40%. It's going to keep falling and bang, 15, 20% up. You're like, oh, it's going to fall again. And then you miss it and then it's up 40%, right? And you've missed the boat. It's the same thing with quality assets in down markets and in hot markets. You definitely don't want to go and pay overs 15, 20%, because like shares, if there is a you know, bad news comes in, that that rule of frothiness comes out. And so the 2021 buyers that just went gung-ho. Um, They're the ones who who, who paid overs just to get into the market, assuming prices would keep running. Yeah, absolutely. But in the current markets, you're just trying to get something at a fair value and play the game a bit smarter. Hence why we're massive fans of using quality local specific buyers agents. Like we don't refer to one company. We would say, right, we're buying the Northern Beaches. Who's the best for that? Not Lower nor shore, inner west, you know, and we refer to someone who's got those experience and relationships. Just try to see if they can get something pre-market or just get something, you know, pre-auction at a fair price rather than just, you know, putting the wand up as much as you can. So, um, yeah, I, I think, you know, we're not betting on the short term, Scott. We're betting on those things. We also believe that as people do well financially in business and personally... What do they do a lot of those wealth and profits get back into property you know and so there's a smaller number of properties and you know, capitalism and wealth just keeps increasing across the world and then they keep wanting those assets and that's why it's so important to get assets that are in scarce supply if you go and buy a beautiful apartment that's great but what happens if you come back in 10 years time a the building's old and then b there's a lot more of them so that to me is just a bit crazy it might be a nice problem today but in 10 years time an old house on a great street that nothing changes, well, then that's a, that's
0: a different story. You talked about the, the, the scarcity thing. And the thing, again, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a shares guy, generally speaking, that's where my expertise is, but I'm not anti-property in the slightest. I'm anti-bad property, as, as you are, and we're both anti-bad shares, right? So we're on the same page here. It strikes me that one of the unfortunate things about our society, from let me be philosophical for a second, is the, is the growing inequality. But it also strikes me that that is, unfortunately or fortunately, if you're clever as an investor, you know if you can't change it, at least make some money from it. I guess if I can be mercenary about it, that does strike me. You mentioned kind of putting profits and bonuses back into the property market. It does strike me that if there's a set number, there's not necessarily a given number, but there's there's a you know a, a reasonable number, reasonably small number of high demand areas, properties, streets, suburbs, whatever those things, and there are growing numbers of people with growing amounts of wealth as distasteful as that might be societally, it does kind of underpin exactly what you're saying, right? If everyone wants to live in, pick suburb A, and you can give me some examples from from, from your area. Uh, there's others in every other capital city, I'm sure. If this is the place to go and there are more millionaires being minted every day, you've only got to look at the AFR rich list and see how many billionaires there are, and that keeps growing. The economy grows at a couple of percent. The, the, the banks of the billionaires grow much, much faster. Because of that inequality, and again, we can we can have our views, I have a view, on, on how unfortunate it is that it's happening, it's not going to change anytime soon. It does strike me that you've simply got almost this, even if the population at large doesn't grow, a growing population of people who are saying, I want that best place. And that does strike me that as you say they're not making any more. In fact, they're probably taking some away because they're knocking down houses to put up units. So net net, the number of kind of, you know, quality residential A grade properties houses in, in particular seems to me to be if anything shrinking in those areas and yet the number of people who are able to or want to access them seems to be growing is that too simplistic a, a view because that strikes me as why quality property feels like it's a, a good place to be
1: well yeah i mean a lot of people believe that you know when people get their 60 70 they downsize and move to an apartment but there's we haven't we've built a lot of stuff for investors that are you know built for you know cheap apartments in high density etc. Um, you know cheaper properties. A lot of investors buy cheaper properties. There just hasn't been enough options for people to downsize into. All oh, right, and they don't want to leave. They've got their networks. They've got their friends. The government wants to keep them in there. They don't want to go to aged care homes. The kids want to keep the parents in the property because that's their inheritance. And so what ends up happening is people just don't downsize. They just stay in the property, right? And they, some of them do, obviously, but a lot of them also went to the regions, right? And this was what they, were, you know, so that was creating housing stock in the city. But then they go to the regions, and then also first time buyers and upgraders have gone to the regions. Now that all the regions properties they want have gone through the roof, so they're less likely to move to the regions now. And so, what you are absolutely, what we're living longer, you know. And you, what one deal I remember years ago when I was an advice, you know. 50% chance that one, you know, two, a couple gets to 65, 50% chance one's going to get to 92 or something. And that's probably going to get to 95 or, and you don't move out. The person just stays in the property, right? So absolutely a lower supply over years actually a shrinking supply of good houses because they sometimes knock them down to build duplexes and houses, et cetera. Um, and yeah, the 30-year-old couple that maybe started off in an apartment, ultimately they've gone and had two kids. They're doing well financially. They've grown their income. Um, they've built a bit of equity and whatever they've got in business or in shares or their properties. And they do want to get into that lifestyle asset for the next 15 years. And they go and take a lot of debt out of it. Also because the rental options are really poor. If you think about quality assets, once they hit a certain price, investors stop playing in them. And so every time a quality asset in that market comes on the market, no investor ever buys it. Another home buyer buys it. And if it was an investor selling, that means there's now one less property for rent. So every year there's less properties for rent for good properties, because whenever they sell, they move to home buyers. And so, it's becoming harder to rent. And even if you can get a rental, you get one year at best. You're never certain. Your rent's going to be up up through the nose and you could always get kicked out. Then you've got school zones and all sorts of other issues. So, the rental option is really poor. And so, then they go, well, I'm just going to go all in on a house. Then you've got the tax system, right? The tax system obviously is tax-free growth on the home. Look, We'd love to buy a share portfolio and get tax-free growth. You can do it in your <laughs> exactly. super, right, when you retire. But the whole system is geared on, you know, reinvesting mental accounting of, um, you know, tax-free property profits. The property market wouldn't be worth $10 trillion if we taxed all the growth, right? Um, but, you know, and that we don't pay tax on property until you sell, even if it's an investor. So, you know, a lot of good investors buy one or two quality properties. They build equity in it, then they redraw it, and then we go back to shares. Well, that's what I do as an advisor, right? Then you've got a tax-deductible debt for shares, you pay off your home loan. And so a lot of smart property investors don't even pay capital gains on their investment properties because they hold them for 30 or 40 years. Whereas shares you're obviously trading. So hopefully that sort of uh, you know, is a big system. You're absolutely right though, Scott. This isn't the whole market, right? If you go to the Greenfield Estates, buy a house and land package. Well, that's not a quality asset. In three years' time, there's another house in land package, which is newer. You buy a new apartment, the issues. You buy a new townhouse, the same issues. You buy in the middle and outer rings where wage growth is, is smaller and people are more concerned about going into debt. Um, these these
0: markets just don't grow as these other properties which we're talking about. Chris, can I touch on that quickly, um, the, the, the bit about the stuff you're kind of saying, like, avoid, and, and new is, is a word you used about three times in a row with different types of assets, new units, new houses, new, new townhouses. Um I'm curious so so you guys have talked on the podcast the Elephant in the Room podcast check it out by the way Uh, make sure you jump on any we're all good podcasters sold as they say Um, you talked a lot about the uh, buying off the plan um, and then I'll, but i want to I want to contrast that with new and whether you mean the same thing so are you if I was if a tennis was built over there it's down it's finished it's ready for sale sign out the front um not as risky maybe not as much upside as buying off the plan I don't know um is that the same basket how, how do you kind of break those up between off the plan newly constructed but finished and then something that's established how do you kind of pass that that group
1: <laughs> look if something's new mm. I'm like well on the back foot. Okay. You take a lot of convincing for me to think it was a good investment. You tell me why. But the reason is that the type that I knew that are okay are in those premium suburbs I talk about with strong NIMBYism and they're a new property that really suits families and also suits downsizers. And it's a really unique block and it's got something really special about it. So actually that asset will actually perform like housing market because it's almost like a house, right? Most and and it's also they're not going to build many more because there's only six or seven blocks in the suburb that they can do that on, right? That's different. That's just, and those those price of those new properties are actually the same as houses anyway because they're built for that. That's a very small part of the new market. The most of the new market is greenfield estate, house and land packages, where there's never scarcity. The build costs are really, it's all affordability. The builder's trying to save money. The developer's trying to make money. And there's a huge amount of taxes involved. They're cutting up farmland, basically, and selling it off at three, 400 square metre blocks, right? There's no, that's it. So you're going to have issues always with supply, but also deteriorating buildings and estates and the demand is not as strong. You've got new townhouses. Like if you buy an area where you've got a new townhouse, right, and the house next door, which was probably the same price, but it's old, that house then knocks down and builds three more townhouses. and the next house knocks down. Your townhouses generally also try to build cheap to make money for a developer, um, also ages, and and land's what goes up in value. So buy the old house if you have to, which get more land, not the, the half the land and a new ha- a new townhouse that's going to age. The other type of new property is, is high density, right? And, you know, in places like Melbourne and Brisbane, there's very relaxed planning controls. You can see there's no apartments are always just getting, get, getting built for fun. Sydney's a little bit different, but Sydney, they do it in little groups, you know, around the airport, St. Leonard's, Epping, Parramatta, um, the list goes on, but there's just never scarcity because they knock down a commercial building and they build 30 levels. And so you've just, whenever you try to sell, there's just never scarcity scarcity you know also the demand doesn't suit families unfortunately families because of noise privacy schools streetscape community and and safety would prefer in in the small quieter locations than these high density you know a lot of investors a lot of renters parties etc doesn't really conducive we haven't built that type of high density here in Australia other countries around the world absolutely so that's why I don't like new is because it's usually got a supply problem, but it's also got a demand problem. And, you know, in five years times or whenever you decide to sell, you know, those issues are going to start to come to fruition you got an older building, you got more supply,
0: and the growth on those, unfortunately, sidetracked because as soon as there's growth, people sell out, and that creates, yeah. It makes a whole lot of sense. So, I mean, you mean, again, you mentioned scarcity a few times. It strikes me that that's kind of the key one, right? If they're going to build more of them, if they're going to build anything about buying a new townhouse, you buy a new townhouse, it's only new for three months and there's a new townhouse next door and that's the new one people want to buy or they want to buy the old established quality place and you're literally stuck in no man's land. Is that, is that a reasonable kind of assessment of how, how to think about it? Absolutely,
1: and ages so fast, right? Um and, you, you know, like if you're going to do something It's not new, classic
0: and it's not new. It's stuck in between.
1: Yeah, like the developer's the one who's going to make the money. You sell it when it's brand new, right? Like You buy that block of land, you cut up your three townhouses and you sell it when the paint is fresh and the oven hasn't been cooked in and all <laughs> yeah, these sort of things. Yeah, exactly. You get the emotional buyer that just moves in. Yeah. I'm not very good with my hands. I don't want to do any renovations. Yeah. And they just yeah. go and pay out yeah. a, a huge amount for something that, you know, in three, six months time starts to look pretty old.
0: You talked about a couple of times very early on saying, hey, some people are buying a new place when they could just improve their current one. Um, the idea of kind of renovations. Again, from, from a, the, the kind of sceptical question that I assume you have an answer for, so it's not really a challenge, but um, you know, in, in theory, uh, if a market was efficient, the cost of me doing the renovation or buying the place already renovated should be roughly the same because I'm not selling enough to pay too much for the renovated place because I know how much it costs to renovate or I could do it myself over here or someone else could do it and an efficient market should equal that out and maybe there's a tiny bit of premium in the renovation being done because you don't have to do it, but it should be much of a muchness. I assume, though, that's not the case. The market isn't efficient. And you are paying overs for, for freshly renovated or, or is that not the case?
1: Oh, it's a bit of both, right? So, the you know, in a suburb, you get um, people who have got certain budgets who just want to be in that suburb, Right. And you know, let's say their budget's two million. I think sometimes this is you know our average loan size is about one point five for our list. And there's a lot of our clients are only a few hundred thousand. You know, they're high income sort of couples and families, and they play in our capital cities. And so that's out that who we work with, right? But you know, they they are, they've got the income right, and they really want to be in this suburb. But the renovated place is two point five, but they can get into that suburb for 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 two. And they may they they look at the rental and go, "We'll just do it in the future." And they don't even really price the rental up. They're just like, "I just need desperately get in the suburb." So you get. Real desperation in markets. So, the bottom end unrenovated places. Plus, you get the people who just want to do it their way. You know, a lot of renos, um, you have to say, aren't uh, well done. Uh, <laughs> and a lot yeah. of them are done just to cheap and cheerful. And, you know, the trends really change pretty fast. So, um, unless it's really fresh and done well, those ones that are fresh and are spot on to the target market, absolutely, they go bonkers at auction because the person who's really cashed up just goes, I'm so busy in life, I want that product. I'm just going to go into a lot of debt for it because I've got the time and the energy to do that. I'm focused my energy on my business and my my family and all these sort of things, right? So the the reno's that are done well absolutely always you know make money. The interesting thing at the moment is just reno's. I did a huge reno last year. Um, I'm sleep, wake up at night thinking I probably overcapitalized and I <laughs> probably have. Um, so I'm not really person you know well skilled to talk about it, but I did it on 2020 and 2021. Um, not 2022. And building costs are through the nose. Materials are through the roads. It's so hard to get a builder. Um, We had a client did a quote 1.1. He got last year, 1.8 this year, Um, the same quote, same build. And so it's really hard in 2022 to get renos done, even finding a builder. And then secondly, them not going bankrupt on you, um, which we've had multiple times. And so renos are just really tough at the moment. And um, you know, properties that need a big reno, they're the ones that are compromised at the moment because a lot of people are saying, look, that's just too much risk. I can't live in that for, and it's so, um, yeah. Whereas in hot markets, those properties that are good reno opportunities, they go just as hot as the reno's because people go, yeah, awesome. I'll go on a lot of debt and then I'll do a big reno. So it is a real minefield and it's, it's you've got to be careful with overcapitalization, but you've also, um, yeah, you've got to make sure you don't under renovate. You can undercapitalize. Um, you know, you, Just try to be conservative. You renovate it, but then you go. I say I love it, but I'm not going to pay three million dollars and be in that kitchen. Um, You know, I'd want a nicer kitchen. So, yeah, it also happens as well.
0: For those listeners who are saying, "Man, you're talking about one and a half, two million, two and a half million. My God, I'm not even close to that yet." Um, What is the what is the lower income earner? Not necessarily low low income, but what the the kind of medium income is not can't stretch or doesn't want to stretch to those sort of prices. Um, is, there, is there a plan B? I, I, is there a choice or is this kind of like, well, sorry guys, tough love time. This, you know, there's, there's not much there for you or there's nothing there for you or don't invest in property or what, 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 is, that, what is that kind of next bracket down of incomes and, and house values? Is there a way to think about those, a way to do those, a way to buy or invest in those?
1: absolutely but you've also you've got to understand though you're playing in markets that aren't as strong and then have got additional risks okay so you've got to play things really smart so okay. if let's say we're talking about a million dollars right um you know, in Melbourne, Brisbane, we very rarely would go near the the, house, uh, the apartment market, right, right. and newer, newer townhouses and things like that. You know, we yeah. try to get into the housing market. And so if you're trying to spend about a million bucks in Brisbane or Melbourne, unfortunately, because those, especially Brisbane's gone 60% plus in the last year in good properties, mm. um, you just got to be really careful. You're getting a quality asset that's going to hold its value. It's got all the wrong strong fundamentals, and even if the prison market cools off, it'll still be really, it's like a bridesmaid suburb. This next suburb is worth <laughs> 1.6 and that's a million. That'd be a good way to sort of protect you. The same thing in Melbourne. You know, you just try to get into a really solid block of land in a really nice pocket where people are renovating and high-income people are moving to. No. So say so you can't do it, yeah. but you've just got to, you know, you, you are going to go to a different markets, not the top preference. Plan B, I guess, for families. And those areas will do well. Um, in Sydney, it's tough. You know, the housing market's probably not even going to be an option at a million, you know, anywhere but you can definitely get into the apartment market, but you want to avoid the one beds. You want to get into a quality two bed apartment in a small block, um- into a you know where houses are really expensive you know so try to buy in areas like your Mossmans your Rose Bays your, your Double Bays and um you know Balmain and you know Lower North Shore like uh, Neutral Bay and Cremorne and and things like that now millions tough just a bit over a million, you should be able to get into these markets and those properties will do well especially if it's a bigger two bed um, with a bit of outdoor space maybe it doesn't have if balcony is going to add a few hundred thousand but maybe you've got a little garden at the back that's communal or you're in a opposite a park or, you know, et cetera. So you can do it. You just got to play it smart. Um, because as soon as you start dropping under that mill, right, then you start getting into high density, your stuff that's not scarce, that you know, real fringe suburbs, and
0: um, yeah. So you definitely there is options. You just got to be you know played even smarter. Again, mate, I feel guilty for not uh, paying you for this, or at least asking our listeners to pay for it, but they get the value. Uh, Chris Bates is from Wealthful, so uh, free, free plug for like well, free plug is giving us a lot, a heap of value. Uh, plug for Chris. Check out Wealthful, particularly if you're in Sydney. Um, do you do stuff outside Sydney, now, or is it just Sydney specific? Yeah, we
1: do lots in Brisbane. my business partners in Brisbane, um, and I live in Melbourne for three years and um, I know Melbourne really well. So the East Coast, and I I, now people in Adelaide and Perth are going to hate me for this, but, you know, if we are looking for investors, (laughs) we focus on the East Coast. We're massive believers in the longer term that people are going to move up and down this coast. Um, You know, the wealth sort of, the older ones will gravitate north and they get cold uh, at a certain age and um, a lot of families are gravitating north. Melbournians are less patriotic in 2022 than they were in 2019. Oh, those fighting
0: words. I'm not going near that one.
1: Uh, But I also think for jobs, job growth, you know, like if you're going to open up a business and start hiring 50, 100, 200, 300 staff, right, fast-growing businesses, they're going to want to be in one of those three cities. And I think because of the time zone and because of, you know, the East Coast, et cetera. So we, we would bet on those three cities and also the sister cities off there. you know, Sunshine Coast, Gold Coast, Central Coast, Wollongong, you know, Mornington and Geelong all of those markets will do really well
0: because of lifestyle. Nice. You heard it straight from Chris. There you go. Mate, let's finish uh, with our favourite four questions I finish off the podcast. Uh, first one, a lot of our listeners are avid readers and watchers. What are you reading or streaming, uh, watching at the moment? What's, what's kind of taking up some of your leisure time? or well, maybe it's even work time. Uh, what are you kind of occupying yourself with when you're not uh, working at Wealthful?
1: I won't admit that I just watched maths, but I will, obviously I have, my wife's very into that, and I, I sure, that I sure, got, sure. I, I You're prob- loving your wife, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, prob- I probably um, was just as addicted to that. <laughs> um, I mean, I am reading everything around sort of you know property, right? I, I definitely, you know, it's it's constantly watching, learning, you know, anyone interviewing people in the property space, you know, and um, you know, it's all about sort of understanding the demographics around that as well. I'm always always reading around developments, right. Well, I, I want to know what's happening, what's changing, what's getting approved. So places like the Urban Developer—that's an amazing website to track. I want to know what the state government's doing. I want to know what's happening with you know our migration and our, all that type of data. Um, what, what's you know what, how we how's our universities going? How's our sort of global story going? You know what you want? I'm not. This is confirmation bias. This is trying to find things that go against my belief. I got really caught out in 2020 because you know if you talk to me prior to COVID. I was less, we had lots of clients moving to the first tier regions, you know, the sister cities to the city. But, you know, we no one thought the work from home thing would go as crazy as it did. I believe that it would. And, I've you know, I was talking about it, but obviously that caught us all out. And that really showed that the regions were an amazing place to invest if you sort of went there pre-COVID. And it also created a lot more housing stock that's seen as premium because premiums now actually split up and down the coast. It's not so in the inner ring, but also the middle and outer ring, bigger houses in good streets and became really good options for, you know, the, uh, the premium end. So that's probably one of been the best thing for housing affordability was COVID. This doesn't sound it because prices went up, but it created more options for people because of the changes to changes to remote, uh, remote work and things like that, which I think are going to stay. And I'm also looking for evidence around that. Apple came out this week and said that they're going to have people back in the office for three days. Right, the tech company that apparently says everyone should work from home doesn't do that for their staff. (laughs) That story, how that plays out over the next two years, I'm tracking because I
0: want to see if my belief that talent have got the power actually Mm. plays out. Could be, yeah, that's same fascinating. Uh, Mate, I was going next question is what trends are you watching? I think you've probably covered that one uh, with the work from home trend, and maybe what comes next. Is that the biggest one that's on your mind? Oh, I think also the global story. Look, I think Australia shot themselves in the foot a little bit. We had a great
1: outcome in 2020, but 2021 we became a bit of a um, dictatorship, right, and we started not (laughs) treating our own people well, let alone our people who have moved to our country, and the global story must... Australia's also need to take action with climate change and things like that, and it's not being political. But, you know, those things around the world, do we stay as a country that high-wealth people around the world want to move to? And are we going to get the mojo back? And so I'm really interested to in seeing how Australia plays out there along with the remote work, um, but also our economy. I mean, we want to, unfortunately, you know, we'd love to see wage growth be very split, but we all know, unfortunately, we're seeing the opposite, right? And so, you know, what sectors are doing really well, what type of people in those
0: sectors Um, because there are a lot of the clients that we work with now you're a mortgage broker uh, so I assume you've got some thoughts on this what advice would you give someone who was considering a career as a mortgage broker
1: well that's a good question right Um, look you know, very early on, a lot of people who enter any industry they think about it's the tools, it's the doing, right? Getting the product, getting the picking, the bank, such like that. That's not the key skill. It's the guidance. It's the person talking to the person, really getting to know what they really want to do. Look, if you're going to get into mortgage broking, you're actually a coach. You're a guy, someone there to guide them through the decision. The product they can get anyway. They can get it online cheaper than you can actually offer sometimes, right? It, but so if so you get if you're there to offer products. You'll never have a value proposition that won't get commoditized and taken over by, um, you know, technology basically. You need to be that trusted advisor, the coach, the one that's on the pulse, that's got the connections, that's guiding them, and he's always looking after them. Look, we often are telling clients, wait, sell. You know, you a know, you know, client last week, you know, he's moving to the US. You know, his wife's just you know, you know, for August no, keep it, keep it, just in case you come back. I'm like, you know what, you told me all your story. Let's just sell it, right? Um, or, you know what, don't buy that property. Why don't you wait for that pay rise? So, you know, it's really about sort of that long-term play. You know, if you're committed to it, educate yourself, become the trusted advisor um, and always do the right thing by your client and commit to a longer-term future and that'll that'll pay off.
0: Um, and um, join a good company or start, start your own one. <laughs> Very good, mate. Um, let's uh, let's end with my favourite question. I'm gonna I'm gonna assume uh, that you're an optimist. Uh, I'm an optimist. Uh, I think it's I think it's well. You've talked about why you expect property to continue to rise. That requires optimism, realism probably, but optimism nonetheless. Um. Other than that, what are you optimistic about, Chris?
1: Oh, like I mean, I think it's just about it's, it's all the way you look at the world. I mean, I, I guess I'm optimistic about my sort of personal future and 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 sort of you know the things and making sure that I sort of stay grounded in the, in the things that matter. And I think that's to me. Um, just remembering how grateful we are you know in the world and so I think optimism around the the world I I get frustrated to be honest with the optimism around the global future of the world Um, I'm definitely in that camp where I think that um, you know we haven't got the people in power doing the right things and you know and I'm a massive fan of you know lover of animals and the wildlife and nature and things like that and so I'd love to say I was optimistic around all that stuff which I'm probably not but optimistic around sort of, you know, being happy and things like that. I think that all comes down to sort of how you talk, think about the world and yourself and your family and things like that. So, um, yeah, stay grounded is probably my advice there and not try to solve too many big problems, just to, you know, solve your problems on a day-to-day level and make an impact that way. Um, the bigger picture problems is just so
0: hard, right, um, to, to change. I love it, mate. I love it. Think uh, think global, act local. Uh, yeah. Love it. Chris, you've been super generous <laughs> with your time, mate, and your advice, your thoughts, uh, your input. This has been a oh, super high-quality episode. I know this is going to love it. So all that's left for me to do is say thank you, Chris Bates from Wealthful, for joining The Good Oil. Awesome, Scott. Love chatting to you. This podcast is hosted by me, Scott Phillips, produced by Ed Gooden, and imaged by Link Kelly. Listener.